0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and be turning to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 is where we will be this morning. And a couple of comments before we get started with the sermon. Uh, next week is uh, December the 1st. Surprise, surprise. And uh, we're going we're gonna to put Mark on pause for the, for the season of Christmas. And I'm going to devote four weeks, or really five weeks in Christmas of the, of the December month to focusing on developing the, the theme of Christmas. What is Christmas about? Why does the whole story of the Bible culminate in the baby in a manger? And so, beginning next week, we will begin that series, and I'm calling it The Great Rescue. Uh, in addition, tonight, we have our, our joint service with Oak Grove at Oak Grove, um, I'll be preaching, so if you're not there, I'll take that as a personal insult against me, <laughs> just no, uh, but we'll be looking at thanksgiving to a God who is our refuge, and so thank you ladies for that song, I've always uh, been, been moved or, or paused by that lyric, when the earth gives way, I want to be found in God, and so we'll be, we'll be looking at that tonight. And so this morning we will take up Mark chapter 3 and finish the chapter. So if you have your Bibles open to Mark 3 and you're able to stand, I'll invite you to stand. We'll begin reading in verse 20. Mark chapter 3 verse 20. Then he went home, talking about Jesus, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the Prince of Demons he cast out the demons. And he called to him, and he called them to him, and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, a kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one who can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he indeed may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all your sins will be forgiven, the children of man. And whoever blasphemies, whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and caught him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mothers who, and, and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. God, we confess this is your word. We ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and open it to our hearts, open it to our minds, that we might see wondrous things in your word. that We might find life and hope, and we might see your glory. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Apologize for my getting tongue-tied. It happens from time to time. Uh, I want to call your attention to a book that was written quite, quite a number of years ago called Mere Christianity. Some of you may have read it. Some of you may know the author, C.S. Lewis. He's written a number of fictional books, the Chronicles of Narnia and some other things, but in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis once wrote that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. And so perhaps you looked at the bulletin this morning and were a bit startled by the title of my sermon. The word lunatic doesn't appear often in a sermon, but C.S. Lewis's argument was right. He said, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is in fact Lord. Well, he goes on to write, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish things that people often say about Jesus. Such as, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing, he says, we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. And Lewis's point is this. You can't come to Jesus and remain neutral, or you can't come to Jesus and say, I like some of you, but not all of you you must either say yes to Jesus or reject Jesus. And so you see there the main idea of the sermon this morning is that Jesus must be taken either as wrong, that what he said was wrong, that what he did was wrong, that he was a false teacher, or he must be taken as the Lord of creation and God himself. And if in fact he is God, then Jesus must be worshipped and obeyed. Is that me making the noise? I'm hearing a noise. Are y'all hearing a noise? Okay. Well, we're just going to consider it a holy noise. (laughs) So, he's either wrong or he's right. And if he's right, then he's 100% right. And thus, he demands that we obey. Well, I've mentioned a few times in the past few sermons about some difficult teaching that's coming. And today, Jesus is going to begin unrolling that teaching. He's going to begin using some phrases or some terms that make a sharp distinction between those who would follow Jesus because they like what Jesus can do for them versus those who actually are with Jesus. And he's going to introduce to us the categories of the insider and the outsider. He's going to... So it said there are some who are insiders and that there are some who are not there are some who are on the outside well let's look first at verses 20 and 21 Jesus's biological family or Jesus's people they hear about what he's doing and they say he's a lunatic he's lost his mind or he's flipped we see in verse 20 that he went home he's back in Capernaum and then, just like all the other times, a crowd has gathered. They've heard he's back in town, and he's teaching again. And so this crowd has amassed so quickly, it says that he can't even eat. They've swarmed him. And as this is happening, his family realizes, all right, he's there, and he's out of his mind. He's bringing shame on our family's name. He's bringing shame on our family. We've got to go get him for his good, for our good, because of all this crazy stuff that's kind of swirling around Jesus. Well, Mark is using a storytelling technique for the first time. He's gonna use it several times from here on out, but this is the first time, and it's got a really technical name, but it's and it's called sandwiching. Have y'all ever heard of sandwiching? Now I had a sandwich yesterday, it's not exactly what I'm talking about, but it does, it does give the right picture. Because what Mark is doing is he's telling a story that he's going to push pause on. He's going to insert another story. And then he's going to come back to the original story. So we've got the bread, you know, the meat or the peanut butter. And then the other piece of the bread. And he's making a sandwich. And so I'll explain it as we go along. But Mark's going to begin this technique right here with Jesus' family. And Mark's intent in sandwiching these things together is to draw a similarity between Jesus' biological family and the Pharisees. You see, his family in this story, what Mark is showing us, his family is like the Pharisees. They've misunderstood Jesus. They've misunderstood him. They don't know what to think about him. And so instead of recognizing that he is Lord, instead of seeing he's done all of these great miracles, that he's teaching with authority, that he's saying all of these things, instead of recognizing him for who he is, his family has decided, well, he's, he's out of his mind. And they've misjudged him. Well, Jesus' family, and this is most likely his brothers, there's no reason to really associate Mary here, and I say that for two reasons. Number one, Mary got a preview. You remember the birth narratives? That the angel came to Mary and said, I'm going to come upon you and you're going to bear a son and he's going to be the savior of the world. And so Mary most likely understands, hey, this is probably what's, what I was told. But a second reason to think that Mary was not included is that in John chapter seven, verse three, John tells us that this was in fact Jesus brothers, James and his other brothers. Well, they 've heard about his lifestyle, his miracles, his miraculous claims, and they, like I said, they' decided he 's deranged he 's a lunatic. A normal person in their right mind wouldn 't be saying the things that Jesus is saying; they wouldn 't be doing the things that Jesus is doing. And so, in order to preserve our family, in order not to be embarrassed, let's go get him. And the language that Mark uses, went out to seize him, means that they intended to take him by force. You can imagine, we're about to gather with our families. Some of you have some very likable, lovable, enjoyable families. And some of you are just dreading that day because of the tension that may exist already. This would have not been one of those joy-filled Thanksgiving family dinners. They bring Jesus in the door by force and throw him down and say, you're not, you're not doing this anymore. You're not spreading this foolishness anymore. But Mark leaves the story here and says, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. And so if you can kind of visualize what's going on, they're kind of huddled around their kitchen table in their house, and they, they decide, yeah, let's go get him. Let's go get him. He's an embarrassment. Let's go now. We'll take him by force if we have to. And so they throw the door open and out they go. And that's kind of where the scene ends. Well, Mark brings us to another scene. He doesn't finish that one yet. That's still gonna, that scene's going to conclude later. But he inserts in verse 22 this, this encounter with the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees leverage, like Jesus' family, they leverage an accusation against him. His family said he's crazy, he's a lunatic, but the Pharisees have come to leverage a graver accusation. We notice in verse 22, it says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. So we need to note that Jesus has been operating in the area of Galilee. Now, if you're familiar with the geography of Israel, Galilee is in the north. Jerusalem is in the south, and Samaria is in the middle. Now if you're in a car, it's not very far. It's about a two-hour drive between Galilee and Jerusalem. If you're not in a car, it's several days journey because it's through the desert. And so the scribes from Jerusalem have heard of Jesus. They've heard of what he's Saying They've heard of what he's doing. Now this shouldn't be a surprise to us because if you remember back in chapter 1, Jesus sent the leper where? He healed the leper and says, go to, the, go to Jerusalem, go to the temple and show yourself as a sign. And so in fact, we can say they've gotten to know about Jesus somehow. And while Mark doesn't tell us it was exactly by the leper, it perhaps was. But they've also heard what he's been teaching and what he's been saying, and what he's been doing. And so, the, the, the Sanhedrin, which is the, the ruling class of scribes and Pharisees that governed the temple, they said, we need to send a delegation to, to really investigate and to find out what's going on. We need to go up there and figure out whether or not Jesus has seduced this city, Capernaum. Whether or not all of this false teaching has misled these people so that they're following this lunatic. Or really, what the Pharisees are going to say is this agent of Satan. And so these are not the same Pharisees that Jesus has encountered before. These are the bigwigs. The corporate head honchos have come down from Jerusalem, or really come up from Jerusalem to lay down the law. They are the legal experts. They are the specialists. They are the ones who can say with authority, this is what the law says and means. Now, if you're on our Wednesday night studies, we're looking at, again at the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus. we've just finished a section of the sermon where Jesus is saying, you've heard all these legal experts tell you this is what the law means, but they got it wrong. So let me explain to you what the law means. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is coming into direct conflict once again with these quote-unquote legal experts who think they know what the law says. And Jesus is going to show them once again that you have no idea what the law says. But we see in this text what Mark shows us is that these scribes, these Jerusalem Pharisees bring two separate but related charges against Jesus. The first one is that he is possessed by a demon. It says in verse 22, he is possessed by Beelzebul. Now, there's no real uh, counterpart to this phrase Beelzebul anywhere else in the Bible. It's akin to the word Baal, the false god of Baal in the Old Testament. But most likely in this context, Mark intends it to mean Satan. And that's because of what comes next. He talks about the prince of demons, which who is Satan. But he says that he is possessed by a demon. And in the second charge, that his power itself over the demons is demonic. Not only is Jesus possessed by a demon, they say, but his power, all of the the the, the, the miracle working power that you've seen is from Satan himself. And so we need to ask the question is in fact Jesus demon possessed? This is one of the things that Lewis said was an option. Jesus is either a lunatic and he's he's out of his mind and he's just saying things that don't make sense, or he's a liar. And if he's a liar, he's claiming to be God when in fact he is a Satan. And that's what the Pharisees are saying. That he's a liar. That he's, he's telling you that he's God. He's telling you that he's fulfilling the law when in fact all of his power comes from Satan. So we need to ask the question, is Jesus demon possessed? Well, to you that may sound uncomfortable. And you are like, absolutely not. Of course he's not. And it's the right answer. I you mean, know, spoiler alert. This is not a, a tension-filled question for the church. We know Jesus isn't possessed by a demon. We know that Jesus is God. But Mark is bringing this story, Mark is bringing this question to the forefront of the text for a reason. And so we ask, well, is he demon-possessed? His, his family only charged him with being crazy. And now the scribes have charged him with being Satan. So they've come looking for a fight. They've come looking for a way to overtake Jesus, just in the same way that Jesus' family came looking to overtake Jesus. But you see, the scribes essentially charged Jesus with sorcery, doing magic or black magic, and this is strictly forbidden in the Old Testament. The law forbids sorcery. You shall not perform sorcery. You shall not consult with a sorcerer. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 18, verse 10. And this is is clever on the part of the Pharisees. It's actually using uh, intuition. Because they have to recognize that Jesus has power. They have to recognize that he is able to do these things. That he's healed this leper. That he is casting out demons left and right. That he's healing the sick. It's hard to deny those things, because on the other side of those miracles, guess what there are? People. People who have been healed. People who have been freed of these demon possessions. And so the Pharisees have to reckon with, There's, there are eyewitnesses, there are people who have experienced Jesus' power, so we've got to deal with the power. And so instead of saying, hey, you're all just crazy, none of this ever happened, they're saying, he's actually doing all this stuff because he is a sorcerer. And his power is from somewhere else. What's interesting, if you look at Jewish writings, later in the first and second century, they wrote about Jesus, and they wrote about this particular incident, saying, Yeshua, which is Joshua, or the Old Testament name for Jesus... Yeshua of Nazareth was hanged on the day of preparation for the Passover because he practiced sorcery and led the people of Israel astray. And so the Jews were saying, these, these leaders were saying, he has power, yes. He's doing all these wonderful things, yes. But the power is illegitimate. The power is from Satan. Well, Jesus answers these accusations with two parables. With two parables. Now, here's where we see the first distinction between the insiders and the outsiders. Because as we go forward, what we will see is that Jesus always answers outsiders in parables. And he will always answer insiders with truth. Not that parables aren't truthful, but parables are for the purpose of disguising or not fully revealing the truth that is contained within them. Because what we will see going forward is Jesus will teach in parables and the disciples will come to him afterwards and say, Master, what does that mean? And so Jesus here answers the Pharisees with two parables. He says he called the Pharisees to himself and said, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And so Jesus uses very simple logic. He says, if Satan is truly empowering me, then he's operating against himself. If what you're saying is true, if I'm operating because I am possessed by Satan himself, then Satan is working against himself. He's a schizophrenic. That he's actively tearing down what he is building up. Satan is destroying his own realm, if what you're saying is true. Because I have been at work casting out demons, or forbidding them to have power and authority over these people, and I've been casting them out. And if I am truly of Satan, then it would be counterintuitive to be doing that. I would actually want those demons to keep possessing those people. I wouldn't want to overthrow their power. And so Jesus says, it makes no sense to think that my casting out of demons is because I have demonic power. It makes no sense. Well, then he gives a second parable. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then he indeed may plunder his house. He may indeed plunder his house. Well, in this parable, Satan is the strong man. Jesus is saying it's very evident that Satan's reign on earth is still strong. Satan hasn't gone away. Satan is still possessing men and women and boys and girls. Satan is still exercising power through sickness and through death and through suffering. And so he is a strong man. He has power. And Jesus says, unless unless a stronger man comes on the scene, then that strong man cannot be bound. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And so what Jesus is saying is, you are seeing the goods of the strong man plundered. You are seeing what the strong man owns Done away with. You are seeing someone come in and steal things from that strong man. Now we've seen this from the beginning. What did, what did Jesus do out of the gate in Mark chapter 1? He went into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. To conquer him from the get-go and to set out on a mission of gaining back what is rightly God's. And so we see this in the freeing of men and women from their demon possessions. And so what Mark wants us to see is that Jesus has entered the realm of Satan, who is the strong man, has bound him, and is now plundering Satan's house. He's going through and saying, I'll have that back, I'll have that back, I'll have that back. And do you know what Satan can do to Jesus? Nothing. Because he's bound. Because a stronger man, a stronger authority has come on the scene. The many forceful expulsions of demons we have seen serve to prove Jesus' point. He's making a strong and successful attack on the domain of Satan. And he's winning. He's winning. Satan has no power over Jesus. Jesus isn't checking with Satan before he does anything that he's doing. Jesus is plundering Satan's house. And now Jesus turns his attention directly to these scribes. They've come down from Jerusalem. They've accused him not just of being crazy, but they've, they've accused him of being Satan. And so now we see Jesus turn his attention to this group of men in a way that we have never have. We need to understand that Jesus is angry, and rightly so. That Jesus, what He's about to say is fierce. And it is full of divine weight and divine authority. He says in verse 28, Truly I say to you, all your sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. But his guilt is of, he is guilty of eternal sin. And so we need to ask, well, what is in fact Jesus saying? What is this unpardonable sin? Jesus has set himself not just towards these Pharisees, but he has set himself physically and spiritually against these men. Jesus identifies one sin that places us in the realm where forgiveness is no longer possible. And he says, that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Well, in the context, what we need to understand is that the allegation that Jesus is empowered in his ministry by Satan, and not by the Spirit of God, this allegation involves a total perversion of the truth. This is not just a misunderstanding like Jesus' family was dealing with. This is not just a casual, yeah, I see you're doing some stuff. I'm not real sure what it's about. This is a total perversion of the truth of God. And then it's a total repudiation or a total rejection of God's rule. And so, how do we take that and apply it in a way that's helpful? Because many of us, many of you no doubt, struggle with that question, what is the unpardonable sin? For some reason in our culture, and in the last 20 or 30 years of church life, we've assigned things like suicide and adultery and other things as the unpardonable sin, and that's just not the case. Jesus only speaks of one thing that is unpardonable, and it is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And we need to be even more clear. Is that something that I say? Is it a one-time thing? Like if I say this one time, then I've crossed that boundary and I'm done? I don't think that's what's being said. And let me explain. You see, this passage is a warning to those who have adopted or might adopt a position of deliberate rejection and antagonism against God. Those who have or would adopt a deliberate rejection of God. Not just this casual, I haven't... I, you know, I'm, I'm really kind of not interested in God. If you are, that's fine. Or not this, you know... Um, I'm trying to be a good person on my own. None of that will save a person. But none of those people are saying, I hate God. I am actively setting myself against God. I am rejecting God. And I'm going to be an antagonist against Him. And that's what Jesus is saying. The fact that the Pharisees had set themselves so fiercely against Jesus to the point of saying, you are of Satan... They have perverted the truth of God and rejected His rule. Now this is opposed to grieving the Holy Spirit. We see Paul says that in Ephesians 4. That believers can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can do things that make the Holy Spirit sad. That cause Him to grieve. We will go on struggling with sin. Sometimes very grievous sin. But that is not what Jesus is saying. This is the person or the group of people who have set themselves on purpose against God. So this is not to frighten or antagonize anybody who has a a sensitive spirit about them. If you're worried that you're committing the unpardonable sin, you're probably not. If you're worried, like if you have anxiety, am I doing it? That's probably good evidence that you're not. Because the the one who would commit this sin isn't worried about it at all. I think there's good biblical evidence to show that God will not allow His people to stray into this area. I think there's good biblical evidence to show that God will not allow His people to even go into that. Because Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, He who began the good work in you will see it, through to completion. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that our salvation is from God. And he has set it up so that we might walk in it. I've included on the bottom of your your notes there, two helpful articles that you you can consult at a later time. The unpardonable sin is a question that lingers and that plagues a lot of people. And those are really helpful articles that if this is something that really is, is, is heavy to you, then it may be helpful. But I want to press on to our last point, that Jesus teaches on true family, on what true membership in the kingdom of God is. And you might be thinking, how in the world does that fit with the rest of what we talked about? Well, Mark's going to finish the sandwich now. He opened with this story about Jesus' his family. He's crazy. We've got to go get him. <clears throat> he pushes pause, Brings in this story about the Pharisees. And now he's going to come back to the family. Look at verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and caught him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? We well, see, we need to understand that... Family loyalty was of paramount importance in first century Judaism. Your blood loyalty was first and foremost your primary commitment. And it's safe to assume that as Jesus sits in this house and this crowd is around him and he hears that his family's outside, it's safe to assume that he knows why his family's here. You remember in chapter 2 when the scribes are questioning in their minds and Jesus says, why do you question And he reads their minds. It's safe to assume that Jesus knows his family thinks he's crazy and that they've come to, to take him away. And so he asks this question. What is family? What is it? What is family loyalty? Well, Jesus redefines this very closely held ideal. He says, what you understand to be family isn't the truest form of family. He also establishes this idea further of insiders and outsiders. You see, in this story, his biological family are the outsiders. They are outside. They see, but they do not understand. Jesus is teaching that there is something more intimately binding than shared DNA. He's saying, what is more binding than sharing DNA is sharing membership in the kingdom of God. What's more binding than DNA is that we share in the mission and the work of King Jesus. One pastor said, It's the performance of the will of God that is decisive in determining kinship with Jesus. Carrying out God's will is what is decisive in determining who's our family. Well, as I've gotten to know you guys, I've learned two things. Number one, kinship is important. As I've gotten to know you as a church, I have learned kinship is important. And the second thing is, most of you are kin. (laughs) But Jesus is saying there's something more important than kinship. There's something more important. He's saying there's something more binding than, than sharing in kinship. While family ties are important, Don't hear me wrong on that. Family ties are incredibly important. He says there is a higher priority. And that higher priority for the Christian is discipleship. The call to be with Jesus and to be on mission as sent by Jesus. And that may need to take precedence at times. Being with Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, may need to take precedent over our kinship relationships at times. We see that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, I've come to set father against son and daughter against mother. That's not a rule. Jesus didn't come to wreck families. But he's saying there is a higher loyalty than just who we are related to. You see, Jesus' biological family does not understand they are not with Jesus like the disciples are. And so, in the story, Mark sets them outside of the house. Who's around Jesus in the house? It's the insiders. The one who understand Jesus' mission. The one who hunger to hear Him teach the Word and to commission them to go. They are the insiders. And Mark's family who does not understand Jesus, they are the outsiders. And Mark will return to this language in chapter 4. But for now, for today, we need to ask, This question, is Jesus your Lord? Are you rightly responding to Jesus as Lord? Or are you somewhere in the lunatic liar range? A lot of people are uncomfortable with calling Jesus a lunatic. Rightly so. It's an insult. But that's how a lot of people tend to treat Jesus. I like what you say about living rightly, Jesus. I like what you say about healing sickness and not having to struggle as much. But I I think you're a bit crazy when you say things like, my real family loyalty lies in the kingdom of God and not my real family. That's crazy. Or we might say, Jesus, I really like what you say about being a good person and receiving from you. But it's a bit crazy to think about following you. And sharing the gospel and suffering for the gospel. I'm not really interested in that. That's crazy. I hope you are not in the liar category. Setting yourself resolutely against God. Let this serve as a warning to you if that's you. There is no salvation from that. And so we need to ask this question, am I recognizing Jesus as Lord by heeding his teaching and joining his mission? We've gotten to that point in Mark's story where we can clarify. Not just this broad question, is Jesus your Lord? Which is a good question. But is he your Lord in that you are heeding his teaching, obeying and receiving his teaching, and joining in his mission? That's the criteria that Mark has said through Jesus about what it means to be a disciple. That we are with Him. That we receive and obey His teaching. And that we are living out the gospel on purpose. You see, Jesus' family did not understand Him and so they thought He was crazy. The Pharisees were confronted by Him and so they sought to get rid of Him. By recognizing Jesus as Lord, by obeying His teaching and Joining him in his mission. And the second question we need to ask on this text is this. Is Jesus' family my first priority? Is Jesus' family the family that I have been grafted into? Is the language the New Testament uses. I've been grafted into, is that my first priority? When you think of your relationships in the church... Are they grounded on the gospel and the mission of God, or are they more built on friendship, common interest, or something other than? We need to see, brothers and sisters, that Jesus calls us to recognize him as Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you help us to see wondrous things and difficult things. Thank you that you pastor us, Lord, through your word. You shepherd us through your word. Help us to see and respond rightly. Help us to respond rightly in these moments. Perhaps we need to confess sin. Perhaps we need to praise and honor you because you have, in fact, adopted us into your family. Help us to work through these questions of, in fact, are we being obedient to your teaching and joining you in your mission? Lord, help us to see these things we ask in your holy name. Amen. As we respond, I invite you to stand and sing. The altar is open. I'm available to pray with you. But let's stand and sing now.